this is what brought me into the space initially is the hope that, you know, we can, we, we can get beyond insulin treatment, but move into curing people instead. Why, why do we have to inject every single day? Why do we have to be worried? Why do we have to have these complications, all the problems associated, say, living with diabetes for a lifetime when the cure is so obvious? Just put new cells in. It has been the thing that has always driven me, the simplicity of addressing that is there, but the complexity of making the cell has always been the thing that has followed. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Jan Jensen, PhD, CEO, and founder of Trailhead Biosystems based here in Cleveland. Jan is the lead inventor of Trailhead technology and has 20 years as a molecular developmental biologist. He is the Eddie J. Brandon Endowed Chair of Diabetes Research at the Cleveland Clinic and obtained his PhD from the University of Copenhagen in 1998 and has been a faculty at U.S. institutions since 2001, where he has published more than 50 peer-reviewed papers and is now engaged with multiple research projects and consortia covering neural, renal, pancreatic areas, as well as cancer and immunotherapy. The technology of Trailhead Biosystems, which exists around the high-dimensional design of experiments dependent on computerized designs and robotic executions, allows for the production of cellular ink as the biological building blocks to address a myriad of issues across cell-based therapeutics, drug discovery, organ printing, and disease modeling, ultimately aiming to arrive at the cures for diseases we've historically only been able to treat, like diabetes, which is one of Jan's original motivations. Trailhead Biosystems is one of the most fascinating companies I've come across so far, and I have learned so much from this conversation with Jan. Everything from the basics of cell differentiation and developmental biology to the vast implications that unlocking industrialized manufacturing of specialized human cells can have for regenerative medicine. So please enjoy my conversation with Jan Jensen. So more and more these days, I feel like I am hearing about biology developmental biology, synthetic biology as kind of the next great frontier and, and where we can realize you know, some of the, the greatest gains for human development going forward. And, and with that, <laughs> I am excited to hear about all the work you're doing in the space. And I want to start maybe with just how you found yourself in the space. You know, where, where did you come to develop your, your passion for, for biology? Oh, yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. I mean, it wasn't planned at all. <laughs> It was a, it, 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 my, my career has more or less been, uh, if, if, if the group went in one direction, I decided to go in the other because we couldn't all go in this particular direction. And it's, it's, it's been like that ever since I went uh, through high school in Denmark, where my class wanted to become engineers. And while I was interested in it, I couldn't feel like, you know, we all should do that. So I had to do something else. Personally, I don't, I don't have a background in my family at all within uh, sophisticated research. Uh, nobody in my family had an advanced degree. 
I didn't know what, what that would entail, but the doors opened. I come from Denmark and uh, it's really a advanced society today, but I'm still the first generation from a family that sort of came out of, of the farming uh, generation. And, and the doors opened for me because of, of, of the free education and the system was there. And I was a kid that just enjoyed uh, sort of mathematics and physics, but never even thought about daring to jump into something as crazy as science. So I, coming from a military family too, my father was in the military for his entire life. Um, and I wanted to be more or less a fighter pilot, uh, but I couldn't because of my eyesight. I ended up eventually uh, within the University of Copenhagen. And that was back in the early 90s. And then I somehow realized that, uh, because I, I, I decided on biochemistry. Mm. And biochemistry was because it was not engineering and maybe I could do research if I became a biochemist, but I really had no idea. So I threw myself at biochemistry and realized then that the more effort I put into this, the better I became. So it all, one step took another. I went from biochemistry, um, I went into molecular biology. And then uh, after a couple of years in that, I then realized that this thing called cell differentiation, that's what my heart was actually beating for because it was so complicated. And um, we didn't really know what controlled it. Mm. At that time, we had just begun to find the first genes. There were some fantastic papers and there were some distinguished scientists in the United States. And I saw a presentation by Bob Tijan uh, from Berkeley, came to Copenhagen, gave a presentation. I was blown away of how sophisticated that type of science was. So I was more or less just, this is, this is what it's got to be. So I threw myself and attempted to become a researcher and did a PhD focusing on these transcription factors that are controlling genes. And I was uh, fortunate to, um, to actually do this in a very large company in Novo Nordisk. While I was still mm. getting the degree at, at University of Copenhagen, I could still do it at this fantastically endowed research institute that was owned by Novo Nordisk. It was called the Hagedorn Research Institute. And, and with that name actually came one of the uh, renowned diabetes research institutes in the world. And uh, I did not know really what it was I was finding myself in. But by happenstance, my interest in cell differentiation landed me right in the middle of the field of diabetes. So that's where it started. Wow. And since then, I've, been, I've just been moving through life as a scientist, mainly focused on curing diabetes, which is also part of the reason that Trillit exists, which we can talk about. But uh, yes, it, it sort of became a happenstance role of an emerging scientist that just wanted to see what was behind that door that I didn't even know existed. Oh, that's amazing. I think I feel like I'm going to have to ask a bunch of clarifying questions given the nature of of the topic that we're discussing here and the the complexity of it. But just to kind of set a baseline, what what is cell differentiation? Yeah. So if we look at our cells, we consist of cells. Most people know that, and there's a couple of trillion cells in our bodies, but there's not that many different types. Altogether, we have around 500 or so different cell types. So, for instance, if you look in the, your liver, the cell type that's most uh, prevalent there is called the hepatocyte. 
That's the cell that does most of the workload of the liver. Um, but there are some other cells too. There are some that are called cholangiocytes, and they're the ones that collect the bile into the, the gallbladder. And uh, you have got endothelial cells that provide the blood vessels for the liver too. And there are more cells. So without going into detail with how many cells that may exist in the liver, each organ consists of a different set of types of cells. Now, cell differentiation is essentially the process by which cells become different. They're in the name. <laughs> um, and then, then what, what, the, what the heck does that mean? I mean, and now you have to think about where we actually come from. Uh, our very first existence happens at fertilization. Thank our mother and father for that event. But after that, we're sort of a little bit on our own initially, of course, in the uterus. And it's a beautiful thing, uh, this thing called life, actually, from a biological standpoint, also from everything else. But it's pretty fascinating what happens after fertilization. Because uh, that cell, that oocyte that now got fertilized, which now consists or has all the biological information that it needs encoded in the genome to create something as complex as we are as we speak here today is essentially that's where cell differentiation comes in and, and is, is essentially explaining how all of these cells became different and also uh, numerous. So in the embryo, which we now refer to it, I mean, it's a, is, is it cell, process of cell proliferation and then sometimes cell specialization. And the specialization is what we call differentiation. So all of a sudden, there is a change inside that growing embryo that is now not homogeneous anymore, but it begins to, from the outside, actually we can see patterns emerging. We can see that there are riches coming where the brain would be. And it emerges into the process of what's called gastrulation, which is the first true visible evidence that there is something really complex being formed here, our organism. And when that process happens, this is a simple, this is like an orchestra playing all at the same time. It's, it's beautiful. All that information that's been packaged into the genome over the millions of years that has led to where we are today mm. as a species is now being interpreted. And it's being interpreted in space and in time. So as the embryo grows, there's the, it gets larger and larger because there are more and more cells. And the patterns, and in developmental biology, we refer to it as patterns because we can see these changes in gene expression and emerging structures of the embryo that is now being created. This is, this is governed entirely by the genome and how the genome is being interpreted. So if, for instance, one field of cells becomes specialized or differentiated, it will now begin to signal to others so that they also can become differentiated. And therefore, it's actually a process where the cells in the embryo communicate with each other all the time as they help each other to specialize. And in developmental biology, which is a field that, that I learned, uh, we call this process, uh, is we call it vertebrate regulative development. And it means that the cells are communicating. There's not a single cell in the embryo that is given its ultimate destination from the outset. They can all, in a very plastic way, communicate and then build the robustness up of, of that eventually creates us as an organism. 
One example I can give you is, for instance, our developing limbs, say the arms. Sure. They look very similar. If you look at the right, if you look at the left, it's like the mirror images of each other. All that information that was encoded to build them was in the genome that was interpreted in in two different fields, one on the left side and one on the right side of uh, the embryo. And they never communicated to each other. So the left arm, the information there was not traveling over to the other to say, you should be a little longer or something like that. No, the process here is entirely interpreted within the field from which they arose. So it just speaks about the how strict the rules are followed in the normal embryo. And I think as a biologist, it's like, this is where I find comfort. I find comfort in the strength of biology because it works really, really well if, if you're not messing it up by putting it into sort of an artifactual environment as a cell culture incubator is or a bioreactor. This is not the normal environment and therefore the cells behave very differently. And that's one of the challenges we have in the field. But the embryo itself, that's the safe harbor. That's where the process of differentiation occurs unperturbed and well. Fascinating overview. Thank you for that. (laughs) It's a little lecture on developmental biology, but (laughs) few people actually ever hear it. And I think it's, it's a story worth telling because we all went through it. Right. No, of course. So where does your path and interest in cell differentiation and developmental biology converge with your presence here in, in Cleveland? Uh, so that's also happenstance. So you see, I, I, as I said, I landed in the, in the pancreatic field because the pancreas is, is the organ in which the pancreatic insulin producing cells reside. And my first research back in Denmark was actually focused on where do these pancreatic islet cells come from? Because some investigators thought that they came from what's called the neuroectoderm. And I, I just couldn't come to grips with that as a scientist because when I looked at the embryo, it didn't look like that. Hmm. So, so most, of, most of my first research was actually trying to sort of uh, help in the understanding of, you know, no, the, these cells are from the pancreas. They are formed within the pancreas. And um, so, so I was spending most of my early career studying the very, very basic science of this formative process of a cell that produces insulin. Now, uh, those years were in the, in the 90s. And from a scientist perspective, it was quite successful because I managed to publish some publications that then led to, you know, the capability that I could move on to the next stage in my career. And that then was a question that was given to me, strangely enough, by a German that was participating in a conference in a Swiss resort, a beautiful Swiss Alps. And he asked me, because he was a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania, and he said, Jan, um, what do you think about you know, coming to the United States and becoming a researcher? I had no idea what that would mean. <laughs> so I, I said, tell me more about it. Well, you know, it's, you become an independent researcher, you will get some grants, some support, and you can decide what you want to do. And I felt that was unbelievably fascinating to think about because I wasn't really geared up for a university career in Denmark, I thought. So I, I managed to convince my, uh, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, Sina, was it okay if I was sort of for a little while thinking about perhaps going to the United States? Uh, she said, okay, but only for five years. <laughs> 
Thank you very much. <laughs> so back in 2001, I applied at the University of Colorado for a position as a researcher, as a young faculty at that university. And I got the position and then I moved almost immediately. And then I was at what's called the Barbara Davis Center for Childhood Diabetes, which was a very good, still is, uh, institution in the U.S. focused on diabetes. And so I spent a couple of years there, actually almost seven, to build a laboratory up. And I was focusing on development of the pancreas and the islet cells. So I continued that research. Thank you very much to the American Diabetes Association for providing the early funding for that. But after a couple of years, after having established the lab, I received a letter from here in Cleveland. There was this uh, strange institution I actually did not know too much about, I have to admit. It was called the Cleveland Clinic. The name had <laughs> had sort of, uh, I heard about it before. Sure, but small, small I system. Yeah, well, it was mainly because I didn't really know much about diabetes research in Cleveland, and there was not too much going on. And now, of course, there was a good amount of, of maybe clinical research, but basic research was not too much. So there was an interest in seeing if uh, that could be started up here. And, and I got convinced, you know, that that was a good idea. So I moved to Cleveland. And, and, and became uh, staff at, 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 at Cleveland Clinic. And I was there for a total of, uh, I guess, tw uh, uh, 13 years before I moved here to Trailhead. And therefore, I could continue the laboratory and perform studies on the same subject matter, which is how does the pancreatic beta cell develop and can we cure diabetes? Mm. So that's what took me to Cleveland. And uh, the five years that my, my wife said we could be in the U.S., <laughs> Quickly turned into to 22 and, uh, and going. And, and now it's Cleveland, and uh, this is the place we call home. So how then do you bridge this gap from research to, to entrepreneurship? And, and as you think about you know, Trailhead Biosystems and the work you're doing now, what was the founding story there? What, what were the questions you were asking? What, did you have a vision for the kind of work you would be, you would be doing now? Yeah, I think the vision has always been there, but to convert it into reality in research means how do you find funds to do that? And, and that's hard in the academic world. It's very, very challenging, actually. And that's just how the system is built in general. Back in 2011, the idea to uh, create a company here in Cleveland based on the technology that we were developing at the clinic was... Um, Fostering the thoughts about, yeah, start, let's, let's see if we can build a company around this and then add another technology that would then be contributed by another company actually outside the country. So, so there was a good amount of effort in that phase between 2011 to 12 in attempting to actually create a diabetes-oriented company addressing the disease curatively. But it, it never actually came to fruition. And after it... it it, it, that happened, of course, it was a bit of frustration because there's a lot of effort that was put into this. But the idea never left. And the state of Ohio, by virtue of the Jobs Ohio program and the Ohio Third Frontier, actually had a, a program going uh, then. It doesn't have it anymore. It's sort of a pity because it was a good one. But it was called the Innovator Platform Program. There's quite a good amount of funding in, in the lower single digit of millions, but more than a few hundred thousand dollars. And the idea that I had that we would use in that previous idea for a company in order to create a machine-enabled system that can investigate and understand cell differentiation. 
That was baked into a proposal that was submitted back in 2013. And that was submitted through the Case Western Reserve University, even if, as I was at the Cleveland Clinic, so it was sort of a partnership application. And then there were several commercial partners that also participated in it. Now, that was actually awarded. And we termed that Ohio Alive. Uh, so it was part of the regenerative medicine focus that the state has been uh, uh, focusing on for quite a number of years. And so therefore, it started through this program, and but I still remained at the clinic. And then was sort of by the state of Ohio put on the path of creating a company. Mm. And so that's what happened because Ohio Live became Trailer Biosystems in 2015. And then since then, took me on the entrepreneurial journey to build value, growth, and products. Initially, it was built on services, and that wasn't a good idea. So we had to change that uh, path uh, of doing business. And since then, we have uh, changed and focused on making sales uh, for many particular different uses that we can talk about. Yeah, I definitely want to explore those use cases, the implications of it, the, yep. the nature of the work you're doing. W- one question I want to ask, though, it, it's, it's one of the perennial startup questions, which is why now? But I, I'm, I'm curious, particularly in your context, like what technologies now exist across developmental biology, stem cells, hardware instrumentation, computation? Like what, what is allowing for you to do effective cell development and, and in a commercialized you know, capacity? I mean, tra- Trailhead is continuous developing and increasing armament of technologies around a core technology that we call high-dimensional design of experiments. Now, th- this technology is not the only one that exists that can help in addressing this problem of cell differentiation, that's for sure. So it's a good question that you ask. Most of the other technologies that are being developed alongside what we're doing are to a large extent descriptive. The whole field of developmental biology has for decades, its entire existence has been a descriptive way of science. You look at the embryo, you see what's happening, and then you talk about what you see. With the advent of gene editing, uh, the knockout technologies, it was possible to go in and eliminate a single gene or two in a developing mouse, and then you can ask a question, well, what happens if you don't have this component? But aside from that, and that was not human, by the way, that was only in the mouse system or Mm. other organisms. So it has been hard over the years to perform experiments where you're at a very uh, large degree change the system. Where you, where you change the parameters and look for a, an outcome. The field of what's called systems biology is, is essentially stating that this is what you need to do in, or, in order to understand biology because it's, it, the biology is so intricately wired with the genes communicating with genes. And as there are thousands of genes and it didn't come with a blueprint, how can we going in one gene at a time ever begin to fully understand this system that consists that we consist of. It's just impossible. So I guess that was the motivation I had is to, to build a method that can, in a very powerful way, not just play one string on the violin, but essentially have multiple instruments in play at the same time so that we can sort of listen to the tune. And this is 
This is how high-dimensional perturbation works. You, you select a couple of instruments that you then play, but you really have no idea what you're going to listen to. But you're going to attempt to listen to things that you know should be important in cell differentiation. So that's what we do. You can't take anybody to just, you know, there has to be a certain understanding of developmental biology before you do these experiments. Mm. But together with the machine enablement and what we do, we, we, we quite effectively now, I think at least, we quite effectively extract some critical, what was called critical process parameters. And that, by the way, is the term that a process engineer that uses DOE design of experiments uses in order to gain process understanding. And so if you want to capture where Trailhead is located, we are located right at the engineering interface to biology. And, and that is where we employ engineering methodologies, but at a sufficiently high gearing to address biological questions, especially that of control of cell fate. And, and we, get, we, we are just focusing on getting better and better every day. And since we've been at it for, for several years now, it's almost becoming a systematic approach for us where we, where, where we get, yeah, we get better uh, for every experiment that we do because they all speak to each other. I, I think it, it might be helpful to perhaps walk through an example of, of what this looks like in practice. And you, maybe diabetes is a, is, is a good one to, yeah. to work through, but what does this actually look like in, in practice? So, so, so let's, let's, let's first start with the material that we may start with, right? The stem cells. It's such an, it, it, you know, many people are ethically concerned and so forth, but we're not using any embryonic stem cells here. We are, we're working on induced pluripotent stem cells, which are coming from adult organisms. And they are uh, capable of being reprogrammed, as it's called, uh, through a process where one can overexpress a certain set of gene regulatory factors. Um, when that happens, then they return to a state that's very, very similar to that of the early embryo. And, and at that point, they can expand and grow essentially indefinitely. They also have the capability to become any other cell type of that I just spoke about, all the specialized cells like a hepatocyte or a pancreatic beta cell. Mm -hmm. But that process is, is one that usually is done only in the context of an embryo. And the embryo is not present here. So how do we do it without the embryo to help? We have to do it in a dish or in a bioreactor. Um, so what we're seeking to do is to guide these pluripotent stem cells one step at a time forward so it ultimately become the cell we need. And we have to do that just like it would happen in the embryo. So for instance, if you we call it multi-stage differentiation. The first cell you're going to make is, for instance, if you want to build a pancreas, is an endodermal cell. That is the, what's called the germ layer from which the pancreas comes from. After you do that, you then generate a field within the endoderm, so you avoid making a liver, avoid making a lung, because that would be alternatives. And then you make the pancreas instead. When you now reach the pancreas, it's like driving to Chicago from here, right? You want to hit Toledo first, hopefully, because if you end up in Pittsburgh, you're in the wrong direction. Right. Right. So, so we, we are, we're going to drive to Chicago through the cell stages here, and we're going to go through Indiana at some point. But first, got to go through Toledo, and then we continue west. So, so here, the first one was pancreas, uh, endoderm and then pancreas. Then we create a pancreatic 
endocrine cell. And then the endocrine cell has to be a pancreatic insulin-producing cell and not some other pancreatic endocrine cell. So you see, at every single step that we employ the technology, we're trying to get further and further specialization to that destination so we finally end up uh, in the place we want to be at. And, and this is the same process we need to follow for making a liver or a cell in the brain. Um, it's just a different destination. And that's how to look at it. And if you look at the logo for Trailhead Biosystems, you can see in that logo exactly what I just said. You have like a GPS needle, and that indicates uh, waypoint finding. These are the coordinate sets, but we're, we're moving from a platform to another platform to another platform, and there are five platforms in total, and that indicates the cell states that we move this needle over from state to state. So essentially, the process of HDDOE is the one where we build a protocol up that is hopefully sufficiently good in order to make a good conversion into the cell state that we want. Okay, that is also very helpful. So to to help me understand um, here some of the the implications from a business perspective, yes, what is it that you are are selling? So we we would like to be actually the leading supplier of specialized human cells, as there is quite a good number of these, and there is also quite a good number of different ways you can use such cells. We're not really in lack of an opportunity or market. So if you think about it, consider these cells as sort of Lego blocks. They come in different colors and they come in different shapes. And they can be used to build different things. So, for instance, if, if you own a 3D bioprinter, and there are several companies that make those, and you want to fill it up with material to print, then some of that material needs to be living cells. Mm. If, you, if you want to build a skin, you got to have some skin cells to print. If you want to build a liver, you've got to have some liver cells to print. And if the ink is dirty, say if the cell is not pure or not functioning, it's almost unimaginable that you can print something that's worth putting into patients or study because it's affected by the poor quality of cells. So therefore, there is a strong need for better cells for, say, 3D printing. But now assume that you, for instance, in the field of, say, you want to make a new drug discovery for Parkinson's disease, okay? And, 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 and there's a good need for that. How do you do that? Well, you need to perform what's called a drug screen. So you probably have what's called a library of very small molecules, uh, drugs by the thousands, synthesized at a very large cost by some organic chemists or peptide chemists out there. But you need to run the assay where you can see, can you actually find this drug that might be affecting a cell state so you can predict that you can, say, improve in Parkinson's disease. So to do that, you're actually in need for what's called midbrain dopaminergic cells, dopaminergic neurons, because these are the cells that are affected and dying in Parkinson's disease. So as, as we have built a protocol, uh, a new protocol for these things called A9 midbrain dopaminergic neurons, we then want to offer these uh, to drug discoverers, uh, pharmaceutical companies, to be used in drug screens so that they can get a better hit than any other assay that they could uh, imagine doing. Because 
if you can't get these cells out of a human brain, it's impossible. Mm. And you might be able to do it on some half-cooked mouse cell, but then it's a mouse test. And ideally, you want to do it in a human cell in the right context. And you can either even make these cells so that they mimic, say, human Parkinson's disease through genetic editing. So in other words, the cells can be used as tools for 3D printing or for studying human diseases or for drug discovery. And we haven't even yet begun to talk about the therapeutic use. Mm. Because the therapeutic use always sits there and people think that that's what you can use the cells for. That what can you do with these dopaminergic neurons? Well, they can likely cure Parkinson's disease. And if they're the right cell, provided at the right amount in the right location in the brain. And there is a company called uh, Blue Rock right now, owned by Bayer, a large pharmaceutical company. And they have gotten approval for a clinical trial of their dopaminergic neurons and they're recruiting patients right now. I just saw the news report from a Danish-Swedish alliance that have also gotten approval to test. So the therapeutic approaches using stem cell-derived cells is now coming. And it will change medicine. And I think Trailhead's role is to simply develop the best cells and also seek that our cells become tested uh, for therapeutics. And to do that, we're looking to partner. So um, we would discuss with uh, companies that are interested in developing partnerships for clinical therapy. Wow, that, that's extraordinary. <laughs> the, the implications, uh, you know, are, are incredible with, with that work. Well, I mean, there is still, just remember, there's not a single therapy based on iPS cells that has been approved. Hmm. So we're still waiting the first win and if you look at the, the diseases that, that for which if you have the cells that can possibly be cured using stem cell-derived specialized cells, there are actually quite a number. But the top hitters are, for instance, diabetes, type 1 diabetes. We need pancreatic insulin-producing cells at scale to do that. And that's where the current trial that's the furthest ahead is ran by a company called Vertex in Boston. They bought a company called Sema, also from Boston, and have uh, now uh, gotten the first patients uh, fully off insulin, or close to fully off insulin, as far as I know, in, in, in their trial using stem cell-derived insulin-producing cells. So there, there are multiple companies that are interested in seeing successes in this space. Mm. And I hope that, because this is what brought me into this space initially, is the hope that, you know, we can... We, we can get beyond insulin treatment, but move into curing people instead. Why, why do we have to inject every single day? Why do we have to be worried? Why do we have to have these complications, all the problems associated, say, living with diabetes for a lifetime, when the cure is so obvious? Just put new cells in. It has been the thing that has always driven me, the simplicity of addressing that is there, but the complexity of making the cell has always been the thing that has followed. So, so Trailhead then really revolves around this combination of producing the biological building blocks, you know, the purity of the, the, yeah. the cellular ink, if you will, you know, the, the, the printing ink, <laughs> and some kind of experimentation around 
you know, how that can be used for drug discovery, you know, therapeutics, like you mentioned, not yet, but perhaps in the future and, and understanding disease. Is that a, a fair summary? That's, that's a fair summary. There's still even further applications of cells, but, but what we talked about here are, are by far the, the, the most important areas of engagement. And uh, what what can you say? It's <laughs> it's a, a one of our problems is to find out what direction we should go, not where we could go, because it's it, there's so many cells that we can make. The technology that we have is is strong enough to likely succeed in making any cell what, that we set our foot forward to make. But does that mean it's a cell we should make now? Hmm. So what, what, because there, there's not an unlimited amount of resources available, right? Now we need to focus to create a sustainable business model and, 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 and grow through that, understand how to get to a market and understand how these markets operate because many of them haven't been served at all. And we need to understand what customers and partners are looking for uh, in the sales that we deliver without messing up too much along that way. And so therefore, it's a, it's a constant sort of testing uh, forward, getting out there, asking and meeting people. Cleveland is not Boston. Uh, it is not San Francisco and it's not San Diego. So we are not in the wheelhouse of our ecosystem of biotech in general. So... Most of what I'm talking about here has to happen both nationally and internationally outside that of Cleveland. It's, and that's just one of the challenges we have to deal with. I know you have raised around $10 million towards this effort. Maybe just kind of give us an overview of what the, the company looks like today and where, you know, where your traction and, and focus is as you are trying to parse where should you go versus where could you yeah. go. <laughs> I, I think so. What we figured out is that where we should go is make some sales and sell these and get a, a revenue basis in this space because it's entirely doable. Then all the therapy comes automatically uh, for, on, on, on that basis because the cells are there. They, they're not going to go away and we'll find paths for that. So we are focused on production and we, are, we have raced into creating a, a, a better set of capabilities uh, into making the cells, growing the cells, scaling them, and hiring in on sales. And then we have, we've decided to stay here in Cleveland. Uh, we've, we were able to uh, purchase a facility that we're going to move into actually in, in, in not more than a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. It's located in Beechwood. We have uh, fitted out a, a reasonably well-sized uh, lab space, uh, tissue culture facility, uh, some manufacturing area, bioinformatics, employee lounge and offices out there so that we can grow in our own space. And I'm just looking forward to that because uh, it, it'll be a new uh, it'll be a new phase of the company and it's a little bit overdue, I, I would say. Oh, that's, that's very exciting. What is like the next thing that you have to, to validate uh, as part of this journey? And I, I guess... A different way to ask that is in retrospect, assuming you achieve success. I guess one, what what does success look like, and what are the the steps along that that journey? 
I mean, most people think about success as being some point in the future where, say, a revenue milestone has been achieved or an acquisition or an IPO and so on. They're all sort of meaningful demarcations along the way. But uh, to me, you know, what I, what I see when I go to work every day with, with the team that we have here and, and how much that's happening, how much people are growing and the type of, of, of understanding that we get just from our activities uh, that's success. The labs in the lab, and the the, the just seeing a, a company being built uh, is success. Yes, there are some other uh, defined milestones that we're going to put up, and we will, and we have to because that's how you have to work in a startup company because those deliverables are key. But in and of themselves, you know, they're not, they shouldn't be the success milestones because there's a lot of things that are unexpected and it happens. And uh, that can, if not more, uh, impact the success criteria. And funnily, as a scientist, uh, I have to admit that science never moves in sort of the fully predicted way, right? Hmm. Uh, Usually there are some events that just stand out as being transformative. I think the first, for us, the first transformative event was when we did the first uh, large experiment and we could actually see. And that's many years ago now, but uh, that, that was, at that point, I just knew. So when you combine value building and science, it gets risky because science can take forever. Scientists think that they can be at it forever. Companies have a you know, limited amount of time to focus on creating particular milestones are of commercial interest. So how do you how do you create the pickup of the value of a scientific process? I don't have the full answer to that <laughs> except to say that I'm 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 believing that we have to we have to gear up that science to really deliver and then we keep the scientists extremely focused so that they don't get too much into another rabbit hole. And, and 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 lose that focus, which is all too easy. We have a little bit of a motto here, actually, and and from a reflection standpoint, uh, so it's, it's it's we change the scientific process, and that's a big statement to state that because you can't change the scientific process, right? It just is what it is. But if I try to explain why I'm saying something like that, mm-hmm. it's because all the scientists that were essentially training teaching them how to get grants, teaching them how to do experiments is all based on hypothesis-driven research. And hypothesis-driven research is by definition then rooted in the human mind of a hypothesis. You come up, got to come up with an idea. And then by virtue of your training, you will test this idea to either prove it or show that it is false. And that can take a good amount of time to do, and you buy into this idea of yours, so you might get cognitively biased towards what you want to see. But the biggest problem is that this is a human-centric process. I, I call that the anthropocentric problem here. Uh, anthropos- anthropocentricism essentially just means that we, we tend to, to view ourselves as superior as a species. And you can see that in so many different things in society where with the apex species and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. But in science, it also means that we tend to think that it takes the Einstein uh, to understand the world we live in because 
it's the most intelligent mind that can do that. But to me, I mean, the biology world that we're entering into here is so highly dimensional that the human brain is incapable of assembling that. It cannot be done. So in other words, what can we do to sort of take the human out of this process and let the machines help us so that we will amplify the experimental interrogation? In other words, try to avoid thinking about all the hypotheses. Don't do that. Just test your way through. Get the response back and listen to what nature just told you. And this is sort of that the other perspective to this is to see, I, you, aren't you yourself the biggest roadblock? And I think that's what dawned on me back in 2011 that I was beginning to realize, despite all the years I've spent as a developmental biologist, that I simply wasn't capable of doing this. No matter how much I would spend time, years, hiring people, publishing papers, we're not going to get through this problem. And uh, still with whatever we have, uh, what we're applying here, these are, these, these are sophisticated problematics yeah. <laughs> um, that we're going through, but it's, it's a lot better than what it was before when you could test idea, ideas one at a time. So yeah, changing the scientific process just means that we're sort of trying to make ourselves a little bit smaller, help it with the machines. One example I can say is that, that everybody can sort of realize or relate to is uh, take two people, Mm-hmm. Give them a task. It's the same task. Dig a hole. Okay. You can go find the strongest person on earth you can find, a Schwarzenegger style. Okay. Sure. And you go dig your hole over to the left, and then I'll go find the little weakling over in the other side, and then I give him the ex- excavator. Okay. And then we'll come back tomorrow and see who dig- who was digging the biggest hole. It's the same thing, right? It 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 doesn't take physical strength. It doesn't take mental strength. It takes the enablement. And, and that's where I think science needs to go. And I think most of the technologies that you're talking about that could, that are involved here, they are all helping us do more as scientists. But I'm mainly focused on what's called the empiricist side, the, the experimentalist side, those that actually do the experiment, not those that gather a lot of data and try to make sense of what they looked at. Can compare to the physicist, you can have a theoretical physicist, or you can have a physicist at CERN that runs a particle accelerator. Hmm. I like to be the person with the accelerator, not the one only theorizing, because eventually you do need the data to understand whether or not your theory was correct or not. No, I think it makes a lot of sense that building a company is, is one of the more effective ways <laughs> to test the efficacy of, of those ideas. <laughs> How optimistic are you that, and in what time scale, that you know some of these challenges that you know humans face biologically could be solved? That's a question you should never ask a scientist because <laughs> if the, if, this, if the scientist comes back with the time frame, you know he's completely bonkers. So so I've always learned never ever to put years on anything when it comes to. When do we have the cure? And so many years ago, I was hoping that the cure for diabetes would happen at the the century of the discovery of insulin. And that would have been last year because insulin was discovered in 1921. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. So we're still a couple of years behind. But I was hoping that it could have happened. But I think the proof of concept has been shown. It's just not approved as a medical therapy yet. So it will come. But I'm not the one to say when. I just don't dare. I think, I mean, because most of these, from a therapeutic perspective, as you're very aware, uh, takes years of regulatory uh, fighting to get uh, and testing. Uh, to, to, to get new therapies approved. But they will come. There's no question about it. They will absolutely be here. But when they will be here, whether it's a decade out, maybe even before for some, or whether we have to wait two decades. And what I can say is that the, the process of development now is exponentially accelerating, right? Mm. So what what was happening over one year say, 10 years ago, probably now happens within a month or so. Uh, I'm, I'm speculating there. I can't say for sure. It also depends on what you're looking at. But it's very clear that we can move faster now than we ever could. And I expect that acceleration to continue. I don't know if there is a Morse law on, on the scientific side, but mm. it's the same principle. Yeah. What, what has surprised you most about your journey so far? I don't really know. You you got me on that one. <laughs> let, let me let, let me think a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think what has surprised me is that, you know, usually the worst outcome that you think in a given situation later can turn out to be one of the best. And you oh, had wow. no idea that, you know, that is the failed attempt to make a diabetes company that led to Trailhead. It was wonderful the first one failed because it would never have had the opportunity that this one has, I think. There, are, there are the, I mean, I'm very happy that I, I, I don't have the perfect eyesight because had I been a fighter pilot as I wanted to, <laughs> yeah. I would have been uh, uh, ferrying uh, some people in an Airbus or something like that today or, or, or whatever, right? I mean, you just don't know. So uh, these, these events in life that you think are setting you back are more often than not just throwing you forward. You just don't know it. And, and, but you have to get forward and then you begin to reflect on, oh, oh. And, 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 and then, so I've just learned to accept fate. So if there's something that doesn't go my way right now, I say, well, maybe it's not meant to be. So we'll see what then comes. We can do the best in the moment that we are and put our integrity forward trust in our ability to change and then lean on others, right? I mean, Trailhead is not me. Mm. I have to say that it's, it's the, the idea perhaps, but it's the team. I mean, honestly, I'm not doing this science. You, 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 you have to interview the folks that are actually doing the experiments that are in our company now. So, and if Trailhead becomes successful, it's also not because of me. It's because of the team, 100%. And I'm, I'm totally in awe of, of how such a collective can form. And that's why I love the word company. It's the right word. Where I come from, we don't call it that when you, when you build a company. We call it something different hmm. uh, when directly translated. But the word company is a great name because it's a company of people. And as much as we talk about technology here, it's absolutely a dead thing. Technology doesn't do anything it is when the humans come in and use it that there is an impact. And this, the value of a company lies 
in its employees. That then can be amplified with technology, but it's always the employees. And I could just call it the team. So I'm, I'm just, so there you go, you know, going back to the success thing. If you're able to go to work and you surround yourself with unbelievably gifted individuals, uh, that's success. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. To me, at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll tie into our, our closing question here, which, which we ask uh, everyone on, on the show, which is completely unrelated to the yep. work you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's for um, your favorite hidden gem in Cleveland. Huh. Yeah. So one can think about, oh, it's a walk in the park out in Metro Parks, uh, you know. Oh, is this the place to go for the best uh, sandwich or stuff? But I don't know. I think, I actually think the hidden gem in Cleveland is Cleveland. To me, it was off the radar, it was flyover territory and diabetes. I think we've been successful here uh, because we're in Cleveland sort of hidden. I don't want to be condescending about this, but we don't really, it's very difficult to think about, you know, a, a large number of biotechs uh, in Cleveland. And I think it's been good for, for this little company here because uh, you see that sometimes, you know, they're venture capitalists, they want to start a company and set aside funds, and then they found a crackerjack team, and, 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 and then they say they're all in stealth because they don't want to let anybody know what the heck they're doing up until the point when they come out of stealth and then the world can see how much of a great idea that they've been now working on collectively for a year. I mean, Trell has never been in stealth. Mm. But we've been in Cleveland and it's been working fine because we've been, we've, we got the time, we got the support. There's a lot of buy-in in the state of Ohio to what we're doing. And I've just been, you know, one can say that the area that we're in fits in what is referred to as deep tech, deep technology. And it just takes time to learn this stuff. Right, we're doing things in a new way. You're going to make a lot of mistakes, uh, but you learn. But you need time, and I think we got time. We got early support, and uh, now we just need to prove that we can make an impact. And that impact is by delivering material. It's not our technology because the technology doesn't matter to anybody unless we can provide cells. So. And, and and if if so, that's there's there's a market strategy, there is a production strategy. There will be a lot of learned principles along that that we have to go through. I think we can solve that. I hope. But so so there you go. I mean, it's, uh, the transitions are, are natural, and and Cleveland to me it grows on you. I mean, raising a family in Cleveland <laughs> yes. is not a bad place to raise a family. That's why we're still here. I think that. Cleveland has a great opportunity to attract other biotechs out of Boston, out of San Diego, into Cleveland. It's not just the cost of living. It's not just the cost of lab space. It's a, it's a good place uh, to do it. Most of the employees we get here, we can find in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Some on the more senior side, we have to look out of state for just because uh, it is. And, and there is a general excitement and also a very down-to-earth attitude to how to get stuff done here. One of the things that strikes me as important is, so I've, I've been talking to several people in the Silicon Valley and 
you know, the, the entrepreneurial mindset is, is, is flowing through the veins of everybody out there. Yeah. And it can take you into the air and, you know, all of these uh, could be's uh, are then, and you get dizzy. You get really dizzy. So what, what is all of this? Is it all make believe and so forth, right? And most of it is, is by and large just speculation. And for sure, they showed the world how to, you know, build technology companies. But, but the mind cell itself is, 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 is just causing confusion. I mean, to me, it causes confusion. Coming back to Cleveland, you're grounded again. Here you are grounded, you know, you're, it's, it, you can focus. And, and, and that's what is also something that I think is important, that we can very, very quickly get distracted. And we don't necessarily need all the noise. But now we need to make some noise. Now we need to get <laughs> out and talk about what we can do. Uh, so we have to turn it around a little bit. No, I love that. Cleveland as the, the meta hidden gem of Cleveland. <laughs> I think many Clevelanders would probably think like that because... It's, yeah, we all know the statements of mistake on the lake and whatever. <laughs> but, but then again, people still stay and many are loving coming back. So I like to see Cleveland in, in, in 10, 20 years, uh, hopefully continue along the trajectory that has put itself on. There is still a lot of work to do, I would say. I'm not fond of letting urban blight stand. And let's just face it, we have that. Where I come from in Europe, such is just not tolerated and will be fixed. But then I can say what I've seen over the last 10, 15 years has been remarkable. Hmm. And I just hope we can continue to do that. But we have to do it together and we have to trust each other. Well, yeah, and I, I, I really appreciate you coming on for sharing your story, your perspective. It's fascinating, inspiring work. So th thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. So it's a pleasure being here. If, uh, if folks had anything they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? I mean, they can write uh, to me. Uh, uh, that's, that's probably the best. Um, we also have a, um, you know, on the website for Trail Bio. Uh, www.trailbio.com you can contact us I'll be happy to to take your listeners uh, comments and see if I can get around I can't promise to reply because the days are quite full <laughs> but um, but yeah awesome well, thank you Jan thank you that's all for this week thank you for listening We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.